The greatest feeling you can get in a gym or the most satisfying feeling you can get in a gym is the pump. Let's say you train your biceps. Blood is rushing into your muscles and that's what we call the pump. Your muscles get a really tight feeling, like your skin is going to explode any minute. You know, it's really tight. It's like somebody blowing air into, into your muscle. It just blows up and it feels different. It feels fantastic. It's as satisfying to me as uh, coming is, you know, as uh, having sex with a woman and coming. So can you believe how much I am in heaven? I'm like uh, getting the feeling of coming in the gym. I'm getting the feeling of coming at home. I'm getting the feeling of coming backstage when I pump up, when I pose out in front of 5,000 people, I get the same feeling. So I'm coming day and night. I mean, it's terrific, right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm in heaven. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. My Twitter feed this past week has been dominated by the Ilhan Omar news cycle. In this incarnation of it, the president put out a video. Uh, you probably saw it, the 9-11 video. Right, and this was after the New York Post published that grotesque cover with the planes hitting the towers. Ilhan Omar is, I guess, among a certain class of elite politician, a very unpopular figure. So, you know, we've been waiting around to see which presidential candidates will condemn Trump's attack and to what degree will they condemn it. And and, and also, how long will it take them to say anything at all? Right. So Bernie and Elizabeth Warren were out on the first day and then i think kamala harris just released something yeah um, after probably getting like heckled online for for days where she at least said ilan omar's name unlike Beto, who who <laughs> released kind of a vague statement about you know we we have to remember our common values or, so and and who was it was it gillibrand who said as somebody who represents yeah, yeah. Uh, this constituency, I can't accept any minimization of 9-11. Of people's pain connected. It's like, who is yeah. minimizing people's pain? So it took a long time for Nancy Pelosi to say anything, and she said something very weak. And as we record this, she just met with the faction of the British Labour Party. Yeah, so so uh, so star British MPs that you've all heard of, uh, like Mike Gapes. Uh, uh, Sir, Sir Tristram uh, Biscuit Bottom. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, and so uh, Nancy Pelosi, you know, Democrats, of course, we all know, have, have an eye for winners. And these guys, having lost over and over again, have now been welcomed into the, the winner's circle presided over by, by Nancy Pelosi. These people who are polling at 1% in Britain... <laughs> And she had some tweet with a photo of her talking to them saying, you know, great discussion with at whoever, whoever about how to confront anti-Semitism in all its forms, you know, coming two days after this vicious. Right. After she released a statement, which where she did not name Ilhan Omar and she basically went after Trump for 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 tarnishing the honor of 9-11. And, you know, there's a take that I would like to bring up on this podcast by a Vox writer. Uh, I won't mention his name, but it's part of a longer tweet thread where he said, Dem leadership is constantly trying to be the adults in the room, trying to suck up to the referees, but, all caps, there are no more referees. You don't get any points for being more civil or having more evidence. There's no one to give points. There's only the fight now. And I gotta say, I'm so tired of seeing this take. I'm so tired of 
you know, if if Nancy Pelosi gives some weak statement that, oh, well, she's just she's just too good to understand mm. what politics are. I mean, there's there is something to this and that there's a naivete to, to the way Dems, you know, respond and stuff. But I, I agree with you that the correct reading of this is this is actually just what her politics are like mm-hmm. the, the politics of politicians like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi just suck. Uh, I liked Eric Levitz's comment on her statement, which was, well, sure, everybody, you know, this statement is disappointing. But what you have to understand is, you know, Nancy Pelosi, you know, she lives in a very marginal, you know, right leaning San Francisco seat where she only (laughs) wins by 74 points. And so she has to do this. She's thinking of the next election cycle. You know, seeing her posing with these ex-labor MPs on the week when there's been this absolutely vicious campaign against Ilhan Omar. I don't know. I think this is about as upset as I've been during the Trump era. See, it made you know? me glad because I, I, for one, was glad to see politicians on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, you know, finally <laughs> come together in solidarity over that Meghan McCain photo to express <laughs> their collective outrage. Speaking of disappointing Democratic politicians and apparatchiks and hangers on, you recently did a deep dive into the work of the foremost liberal commentator in the paper of record, that's Paul Krugman. You know, during the Bush era, Paul Krugman was about as left-wing a voice as there was in the mainstream media. What conclusions did you come to going into a deep dive of him? Yeah, so I mean, this has been, I've been working on this for a while. This was pretty labor-intensive. I mean, I've read a lot, I spent a lot of time with Krugman because I read him a lot during kind of the Bush era and in the early 2010s as well. I mean, he was really one of the only prominent voices with such a platform who was so articulate in making the case against austerity, which was the economic philosophy du jour. You know, the economy is like a household, you know, and you, you can't spend more than you take in. And so you ha- so cutting the damn deficit has to be the be-all, end-all of public policy. Uh, so that's why we need to cut these teachers' salaries and cut, you know, cut welfare checks and roll back state investment in all areas, which is not at all going to reduce the amount of tax revenue or have a, a deflationary effect. No, no, no. So he, he was one of the people making the case against that stupid philosophy. And I, I, you know, I make clear in the essay, he's much more interesting than the average liberal columnist. People want to read the piece, by the way, it's over at Jacobin. It's called The Diffidence of a Liberal. But going through Paul Krugman's back catalog, you know, what you find is that he's actually very prescient about a lot of things and that he's had a a willingness to, I guess, go after figures on his own side, which makes him a lot more kind of iconoclastic than, I mean, it's it's a relative term when we're talking about liberal Uh pundits, but... Um, textured perhaps well i mean so at the height for example at the height of obama mania krugman was writing columns pointing out that like look this guy's basically a centrist he's never been part of the progressive wing of the democratic party really his voting record places him pretty close to hillary clinton in a lot of places he likes to talk about how the main problems in the united states are problems of process rather than they are of substance and he was writing that well into kind of like 2009 2010 as the kind of Tea Party backlash was happening, he was hammering the Obama administration for repeatedly courting Republican votes and things like that for this kind of naive fixation with bipartisanship and things like that. Out of curiosity, did he support Hillary Clinton in 2008? Yeah, he absolutely did. So this is one of the things that's kind of strange about Krugman is he just does have, he was very critical of Bill Clinton, but he do, he has had this kind of strange partisanship for Hillary Clinton. And I even though I've read a tremendous amount of his work, I, I'm not sure I quite know how to account for that. I mean, I think there was something very inconsistent in what he was saying in 2008, where he was saying that, 
you know, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and, you know, people wanted a, a new FDR. They wanted a transformative figure and that's what the country needed. He didn't find that in Obama because Obama, you know, his kind of sweeping rhetoric didn't have a lot of substance to it. But then I don't know how you can then think Hillary Clinton is, is a good candidate. But Krugman interests me for this very reason because he's been right about a lot of things. Now, this was all before... Uh, as I mentioned in the piece, in 2014, he wrote a piece for Rolling Stone, which Thomas Frank aptly called a big sloppy wet kiss, where he basically just reversed his position on, on Obama. And, and of course, he in the piece, he, he argues that he's being consistent, but he basically says, actually, Obama is a pretty transformative president and a you know, progressive president. And as Frank puts it, you know, he basically reverses and instead of saying the glass is half empty, the glass is now half full. So I'm interested in this because I, I've spent a lot of time with liberal figures who are a lot less ideologically coherent than Krugman, who are a lot less programmatic. I mean, Krugman is kind of a health policy guy, among other things. Um, I mean, he's also a Nobel Prize winning economist. So there, there's much more substance to him, I would say. He was for universal health care, right? Well, this is what's interesting. So in 2007, he wrote this book, The Conscience of a Liberal, which, yeah, basically makes the case, among other things, that... Universal health care is the single most important domestic policy issue for liberals and that it's necessary to be partisan because the only thing that's going to kind of reverse the course of the country is for a democratic majority to pass some form of universal health care. And in the book, he goes on, and he talks about how, you know, single payer health care is the best form. But it was amazing going back to read it because I read it, you know, maybe in the early 2010s. And I just remembered it as a book that's making the case for single-payer health care. But interestingly, it doesn't actually do that. Because having said that single-payer health care is the best system, he basically then goes on to say that it's not actually really feasible to push for it because the backlash hmm. will, be, will be too strong. And this is after a chapter where he makes very strong arguments about, like, this is a moral case. People will say that doing the right thing is not possible, and we can't capitulate to that. We can't buy off the special interest groups. We can't do bipartisanship. So he makes the correct case and then reverses. And I was very interested in the the interplay between those two things. And just yesterday, I think he had another. He had a column where he was making that exact same case and saying that while he thinks the Green New Deal might be possible, Medicare for all is it should not be a litmus test, and you know it, it's dangerous for puritanical progressives <laughs> to pursue it. So the other thing about Krugman is he really doesn't like Bernie Sanders. And I'm as somebody who has spent a lot of time with Krugman, I find this almost as baffling in some ways as his weird partisanship for Clinton. Because his reading of Sanders is just incredibly shallow. There's a column he wrote, I believe some years ago, where he basically said, Hillary Clinton is the heir to President Obama and Bernie Sanders is the heir to candidate Obama. So his reading huh. of Bernie Sanders is that he's just this like one note kind of soaring transformational rhetoric. But then Krugman has all these very wonkish reasons why none of this stuff can actually happen. And I think that is a testament to and this is kind of the th this was the thing my piece was really interested in getting at the testament to the limits of a kind of well-intentioned liberal reformism that has some intellectual substance, whatever, to look at Sanders and to not see that there's not just a guy going around spouting transformational rhetoric with no plan to carry this stuff out. Everything Sanders says is premised on the idea that this stuff is going to be really, really hard and that it's not going to be achieved through conventional means, but it's the only alternative if any progress is to be made at all, is mm -hmm. to build a social movement and kind of unleash social forces the Democrats have for decades, if not 
ever, you know, forever been very uh, hesitant about trying to marshal because they've been so invested in this politics of kind of elite brokerage and compromise, which Krugman himself has been such an, an eloquent critic of. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I was very, I'm very interested in that. And uh, it will be very fascinating to see how he reacts to Sanders this time, because last time, I mean, I think in the piece I used the word juvenile to describe his attitude towards Sanders. And I really think, I really think it was. I, I think it is unforgivable to be a liberal commentator with the good instincts that Paul Krugman does have and to show such a lack of curiosity or or interest in something like the Sanders uh, campaign. Just rhetorically, Sanders and Obama have such enormous differences. Sanders is much more willing to name enemies than Obama is. Obama's signature point of we're not just red states and blue states is you know, not exactly the same as Sanders. Sanders is also going for a certain universality, but the the red states in his in his vocabulary are the billionaire class. Yeah, if there's a, if there's a schism in politics, yeah. th- that's what it is. And Obama, you know, I I think you're right. You know, he just he shunned the language of contestation altogether. Mm-hmm. There's a great Krugman column, an old one, where he he quotes Obama's thing about like. We are the people we've been waiting for, and he says, "Waiting to do what exactly?" Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. and I, I think this is just you know to uh, you know I, we, I don't want to harp on this too much, but if you go back to two thousand eight and you ask the average Obama rank and file Obama supporter why they supported Obama, you know they might have answered many things, but I don't think many of them would have answered kind of programmatically. Whereas, what do people associate with Bernie Sanders? There's free college. There's you know Medicare for all. These specific things that people can name people projected stuff onto Obama. I think they would have projected universal health care onto him or ending the Iraq war. And you know that in The Audacity of Hope, he was very conscious of that. He writes, and I quote, I serve as a blank screen on which people of vastly different political stripes project their own views. That's amazing. I mean, it's incredible that he just, it was, it was right there. You don't have to do a Straussian reading <laughs> at all. Well, you know, you mentioned healthcare earlier, and uh, I'd like to pivot the discussion to health nuts. <laughs> People who want the best bodies that they can possibly have. (laughs) Uh, Tonight, we watched the classic Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary, Pumping Iron. Yes, folks, that's right. The director of Going Up River, The Long War of John (laughs) Kerry, makes his triumphant return to the Michael and Us podcast. And we're talking about this movie for a few reasons. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, obviously a potent figure in the Michael and Us cosmos. (laughs) But also because... My co-host, Luke, has had his own fitness journey over the last year, two years. At the day of the contest, if he comes in his best shape and he's equally as good as I am, or if, let's say, he's a few percent better as I am, I spend with him one night. I go downstairs and book us together in a room, you know, to help him for tomorrow's contest. And that night, he will never forget. I will, I will mix him up. <laughs> he will come so ready to South Africa, so strong. But by the time the night is over, the next morning, he will be ready to lose. I mean, I will just talk him into that. That's no problem to do, you know. And uh, so all those things, you know, are available. And so if they're available, you might as well use them. So that's why it doesn't matter if he comes in shape or out of shape. If he comes out of shape, at least has, has less, less hassle from me, you know. And if he's in shape, fine. I hope he is. But you couldn't pull this with Franco, could you? Franco's pretty smart. Franco's pretty smart, but Franco's a child. And 
When it comes to the day of the contest, I'm his father. He comes to me for advices. So it's not that hard for me to give him the wrong advices. So Luke, I've watched you transform from, you know, just a kind of a schlubby guy, you know, just a, you know, nothing, nothing remarkable to an Adonis. <laughs> uh, but seriously, folks, Luke has been been very interested in the world of fitness, eating right, exercising. And you've also really immersed yourself in the world of like YouTube bodybuilders. And this is, I think, an underexplored facet of you. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I haven't really assimilated this into kind of my public, you know, my Twitter persona or whatever. <laughs> but no, I mean, it, you know, going to the gym became a hobby, you know, a hobby for me. I guess a bit of backstory back when I was kind of 17, 18. I had my first bout of, uh, you know, go, going to the gym. So I guess, you know, I, I've always had a kind of an interest in this stuff. But I really had no no idea what I was doing back then. You know, for example, I used to make myself sick with, you know, I used to just think you, you should have as much protein as possible. Uh -huh. So I was buying, you know, I didn't have any money then either. So I was buying like the lowest grade protein powder, like the kind that you get in like a bucket. And I was just, you know, drinking, you know, I also thought that you sort of had to have you know, food with protein in it kind of every 90 minutes. So your body was going to go into a catabolic state. Wow. So it's just downing protein shakes like crazy. I sort of understood that you kind of were supposed to eat a lot, but I didn't really understand, you know, that the composition of what you eat matters, you know, and that also you're not really just supposed to eat all the time. Um, Damn it. So I really had no idea what I was doing. I probably wasted a lot of money. I wasted a lot of time. I mean, when you're 17 and you lift anything at all, you put on a little bit of muscle. Um, so I suppose I made some gains. And then I guess I was out of the gym. Basically, my third year university, when I moved off campus and the gym wasn't right there, I just stopped going. Um, even though I was on campus every day, I couldn't make a, a habit out of it. And I don't know, I guess the gym I'm currently at, I've been going for a few years, but like, I guess in January of 2018, I just suddenly thought, why don't I try to take this a bit seriously? So I started doing some research. And the results were extraordinarily quick. I mean, like within sort of six or seven weeks, there'd been a noticeable change. And I just kept going. And a lot of why I think I failed when I was 17, partly because I was an idiot at 17 and I wasn't really careful and I didn't do research, but also because this world of kind of YouTube bodybuilders, I don't really think it existed back then. Hmm. And so I've encountered all these guys who, you know, as I was saying to you, are probably mostly guys that if I had a beer with them, I would have nothing to talk about, like except, I don't know, fitness YouTube or whatever. Hmm. They're not guys that I would probably like meet socially in, in my life or whatever. But I've developed a tremendous amount of respect for, for some of them, and they have been tremendously helpful. You showed me a clip of one guy. He's very popular. Yeah. And the video was the real American Psycho. Right. And it's like the early scenes of the movie American Psycho. Right. Where it's like... Where Christian Bale is doing his morning routine. And, he, and he's telling you what his fitness regimen is. That's and right. what he ingests. But it's no irony. Right, right. And I mean, in fairness to that one, it is an ad, it is an ad for a bunch of his supplements uh -huh. or whatever. So the whole thing isn't just ads, but... But yeah, like that will give you an idea of like the corner of, I guess, over the top self-serious masculinity that a lot of this stuff occupies, which I also kind of find weirdly fascinating. What are the politics of these guys, if any? Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, I would say most of them are pretty normie, right? Like they like comic book movies. Sure. They probably watch a lot of, I mean, fuck, I find Family Guy funny, but like they really watch, you know, Family Guy, that kind of thing. Sure. 
I would say if politics ever intrudes on this universe at all, it is one of them making a reference to like Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson or something. Uh Jordan Peterson is interesting because there is a whole contingent of people who follow him who I, I think are kind of like barely clued into his far right politics. They like him just as sort of a success win, you know, motivational speaker like Tony Robbins or something. Absolutely. So that's the thing I learned pretty quickly too, is that this world intersects very strongly with what might be called kind of self-help or lifestyle YouTube or whatever. And a lot of these guys, you know, we'll we'll talk about pumping iron and there was a guy in the in the film with this backstory, but a lot of these guys have a backstory where they didn't make, you know, they have a formative story where like they failed to make the football team at 15 because they were mm-hmm. too small or something. Or you know, they had something they were dealing with. Some of the really big YouTube fitness guys, there's a guy in Ohio, for example, who uh, he has a whole video where he's talking about his like video game addiction and his uh, his bad skin and all this kind of stuff that that he got over. And for a lot of these guys, you know, fitness isn't just something that helped them in their life. It actually sort of became their life mm. because they started a business or they mm-hmm. started, you know, they, they got big on YouTube or, or whatever. And their origin story is very much part of their shtick. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and a lot of them, like, they take that stuff, they take kind of the lifestyle stuff so far that, I mean, for example, this guy in Ohio, I don't even really know if he counts as being a YouTube fitness guy anymore because he mostly just kind of vlogs about stuff. It's just about his his life now and his like, you know, he's trying to teach lessons and, and dispense wisdom and huh. stuff. And that happens to a lot. And there's another guy I watch actually one of his... Um, by the way, if, I'm not going to share the names of any of these guys. If people actually are interested, they can DM us if they want to learn about, uh, about, about any of this stuff. But there's a guy in Romania who was really big for a while, who's like one of the best kind of most unpretentious, probably one of the few kind of really unpretentious channels. And this guy, couple years of really, really solid, really well-made, informative videos. He's a really relatable guy because he's not like, he doesn't look gigantic or whatever. He's just very in shape and he, you know, eats well and whatever. And he's doing it on a budget, et cetera, et cetera. But he got really into like, just kind of self-help stuff. And he tried to pivot the channel into that like really hard. He tried to start a whole kind of like motivational speaking business and it totally flopped. So the last video on his channel is sort of just like an update, like why aren't I posting or whatever. I assume his business is still successful, but he's just like stopped posting the YouTube videos because he tried to pivot and he failed. He took it, he took it too, he looked too directly at the sun. Now, one of the great Horatio Alger stories of our time is that of Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Austrian immigrant who came to America hoping to become the biggest star in the world and succeeded. Uh, What was it, like four or five time Mr. Olympia? It might have been six or seven even. Insane. Before becoming the movie star and politician and probably would have been president if he could have been. Since the end of his gubernatorial career, and you know, his, his movie career continues, but it's sort of struggling right now, he finds himself a bit of a, a bit of an exile in the Republican universe. <laughs> because um, he's a moderate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a Democrat, basically. <laughs> he's, he's an establishment Democrat. He's a California Republican, which basically just means like a Democrat in most other places. We were looking at his gubernatorial record before this, and, you know, he's pro-choice. He's, uh, for the, his current cause is that he is campaigning against gerrymandering. Well, what was the and tweet? And defending the honor of John McCain. Oh, yeah. The, you t- <laughs> there was a tweet from, like, Chris Matthews 
Matthews or something. I think it's tonight he's going on Chris Matthews to to defend McCain from Trump and to talk yeah. about gerrymandering. So that's what Arnold's up to these days. And he's also kind of rebranded himself on Twitter as this like success win guy. Like every now and then I'll see people sharing like somebody will post under one of his Facebook posts like uh, Special Olympics aren't real Olympics. That's not real sports. And you'll see Arnold official say, <laughs> you know, this is a teachable moment because this person is is hateful and bigoted and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And pumping iron captures him towards the end of his bodybuilding career. It covers the 1976 Mr. Olympia competition, where there are a couple of young upstarts who are threatening his crown, including future Incredible Hulk Lou Ferrigno. It's clear that this is his last go-round, and he's definitely a success win guy, you know, a power of positive thinking, like, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut out all the bad thoughts and uh, through sheer force of nature. But it's also about the darker side of that, the fact that he's a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, I mean, it's amazing. He's talking to the camera a lot about... His, how his philosophy of how to win these competitions extends to kind of psychological warfare. Oh my God. And so he talks <laughs> about how he like basically grinds his opponents down by just, he's like, you know, he gives them like weird advice. Like there was one guy that he was competing against when he was like a teenager in his early twenties in Munich. And he was telling him to, uh, scream really loudly when it like when your hands are way up you scream and when they're down you, you yeah. scream like at, at like a lower in a lower octave or whatever that'll project power somehow yeah yeah and he just he trained this guy for hours in this completely fake thing about how to win bodybuilding competitions and the guy was like led off the stage <laughs> at the competition because they thought he was crazy and at mr olympia in south africa yeah scenic harmonious beautiful pretorious okay. <laughs> in, in the mid 70s in interviews before he goes, he's talking about, you know, I'm uh, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna do what I have to do to win this. I'm gonna maybe put some phony advices in his head, <laughs> and we see him at that scene where they're having breakfast, at breakfast <laughs> with Lou Ferrigno, <laughs> and Ferrigno is there with his dad, who is kind of his Walter Gretzky, you know. <laughs> And Ferrigno is clear. He's a few years younger. And by this point, Schwarzenegger is already just a total legend in this field. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the sport is basically built around him. Well, I was saying it was kind of like if people have seen The King of Kong where, you know, around, what's it, Billy? Uh, Billy Mitchell. Billy Mitchell, like the that Twin Galaxies organization builds up around him. He's like the king of gaming. And that's kind of like what Arnold was. Like, I would imagine even the Arnold probably did a lot of sponsorship, supplement companies and stuff, who probably themselves were sponsoring this tournament. So when he gets out on stage, he gets like a special announcement. You know, the other oh, guy, yeah. the other guys, it's just like their name and their country. And then for it's like from United States of America via Austria, the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like he gets a special it's, I think it's kind of rigged. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> definitely wrong. But yeah, he's at breakfast the day of the competition with Ferrigno and Ferrigno's dad. And he's just like nagging and nagging and <laughs> nagging. And he's just got a great big smile on his face while he's doing it. He's like, you should have trained him harder. Look yeah. at him. He, he peaked too early. <laughs> and, then, and then he's like, I, I tell you, you know, in, in two months, he'll be really good. <laughs> you know? And he does it with this grin on his face. And, and also this movie... It has this training montage cutting between the two of them. I training. think that's my favorite part. And Ferrigno is working really hard and his dad is so hard on him. Meanwhile, Arnold is in, you know, state-of-the-art gym and he's got two attractive young women like riding <laughs> his back while he does push-ups. 
And you kind of think it's going to set it up as this Rocky Three situation. Like, oh, Arnold, he's pampered. He's losing it. He's too, he's too arrogant. Not at all the case. <laughs> he's still got this because what he understands, what makes him such a good politician is you can't pull yourself up by bootstraps alone. You just have to be extremely arrogant and have absolutely no self-doubt. And he's figured out how yeah. to do that. And no morals. Right, that too, yeah. He's, he's <laughs> completely unscrupulous about just like, you know, nagging this poor kid who's, you know, who actually is bigger than him. Yeah. And, you know, basically grinding him down so that he, he doesn't just lose, he comes in third. Yes. So, so an also-ran guy who's like a French bodybuilder, an actor, uh, comes in, se- who, who's, who's just introduced him. to us, like... Twice in the film, he, he comes in second and poor old Ferrigno comes in third. Ferrigno, when he comes out, is already deflated. Yeah. And, you know, when Arnold comes out, it goes to show how much presentation is important in this. And I'm not just talking about the presentation of your body, but like he's got this swagger about him. You know, he's got this big grin while he's doing it. He's a showman up there. He's very he's totally in tune with his charisma as an instrument. I may be misattributing the quote, but I think it was the novelist Martin Amos who referred to Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie as a brown condom stuffed with walnuts, which oh, I think fantastic. is a perfect description. My my only uh, disappointment about the film is I was hoping it was going to get into some like nerdy aspects of you know seventies bodybuilding because we see a lot of them training, but there's really no it's just big guys lifting heavy things. There's no kind of sense that this is like a, well, a sport, but also it is kind of a a science and that there's actually a method here. Like, it's really not just about, I mean, to go back to my own experience, when I was 17 or 18, I don't know, I would see shit like this or I would pick up a men's health or whatever, a maximum fitness, I think was another one I would get. And you don't really learn anything. You just see these huge guys. Many of them, you know, I know now that a lot of the models in those magazines are just on steroids, which is why they're gigantic. Not Arnold. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps. <laughs> he did it all not himself. Commenting, not commenting. You, <laughs> you might think that. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, but yeah, so you read these magazines, you watch footage like this, and you just see these guys lifting really heavy stuff. And you think, okay, so I'm going to just go to the gym and like push myself as hard as I conceivably can. I'm going to do that every single day. I used to do full body workouts every single day, not understanding that there's really no point to that. You know, you actually need to recover. You know, your central nervous system has to recover. You can't train, you know, the same muscle groups just over and over again. You know, unless you're doing a very specific kind of split, you know, you really don't need to lift more than three times a week, you know, doing four, like just even doing every other day, like there's probably no point in in doing that. All these things I I didn't know. So anyway, that's a roundabout way of saying I was really hoping this film was going to get into like Arnold's training stuff, which I'm sure you can read about and stuff anyway. There's not much of a sense that there are like different shades to bodybuilding, like as an art form. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are whole different styles of training, even um, from the limited amount I know about bodybuilding in the 70s. I mean, the science around nutrition was a lot less advanced. So a lot of what they used to eat was basically just boiled chicken and and like broccoli and stuff like that and we know now that there's a lot more uh, flexibility in terms of what you can eat it's it's much more accessible now than it used to be for that reason we do see ferrigno chowing down on lettuce and salt i would guess that that's probably gives him a bigger pump because salt gives you a pump nice yeah so that helps you look good when you're on the on the stage so were you a big arnold schwarzenegger fan growing up uh, I mean, I was a fan of uh, hit films like Jingle All the Way. The ones we were allowed to the see. The ones we were allowed yeah. to see. Uh, you know, I did have a really weird experience, uh, which I, I sort of um, 
15 years later or whatever kind of capped off. Back when I was a kid, I, I saw True Lies, which is a very strange film. Because I saw that with my dad as a kid. Classic dad-son experience. Right, right, because it's it's very bizarre. I mean, it's because it's a it's a genuine genre pastiche. It's a sort of family comedy, dad in crisis, uh, save the marriage, and then it's also just like an Arnold action movie where he fights the terrorists and, and wins. It is the ultimate dad in crisis movie because it ends with, you know, it turns out the reason he's a bad dad is not because he's a bad dad. It's because he's, he's risking his life for the country. And, and he ends up saving his daughter in like a fighter jet. And, he, um, and he's also checking to see that his wife isn't cheating on him by, right. by posing as <laughs> by posing as someone for her to have an affair with. Right, right. It's a somewhat problematic film. Uh-huh. But I, but so I didn't really get that movie as a kid, and I watched it again. I think I, I think I had like a sick day last year or something, and I mm-hmm. watched it. And I don't know, I think I understood that it was a pastiche film much more. Because as a kid, I just found it very disorienting. I've said this many times, but for me, Arnold, when I was a kid, was like, he was a grown-up movie star. <laughs> like, he made movies that were violent and were R-rated and that grown-ups went to see. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he was your ideal of masculinity or something. Well, that too, honestly. <laughs> like, I remember as a kid, I had a Terminator 2 t-shirt that I got from Universal Studios in Orlando. Mm-hmm. And that felt so cool because I wasn't even allowed to see the movie, but I had this shirt that had Arnold Schwarzenegger on it. (laughs) Probably could have stopped bullets, too, if someone had taken a shot at you. Well, you know, we'll never know, I guess. (laughs) One more interesting thing about Schwarzenegger, when he ran for governor, he was kind of proto-MeToo'd. There were some journalistic investigations into him. I think Premier Magazine, the departed Premier Magazine, published one. I have an article here from... The Guardian in 2003, it said Schwarzenegger admits behaving badly after groping claims. Six women who had met Schwarzenegger on film sets and studio offices and elsewhere since the 70s and most recently in 2000 have made the allegations. Two agreed to be named in the report, which was published yesterday by the Los Angeles Times. What I think is interesting about this is I don't remember it putting much of a dent in his popularity at all. And in fact, I think there was quite a bit of backlash to it. I remember, in fact, there was an issue of Premier Magazine where they reported on this and they got this flood of letters from former co-stars, directors, co-workers saying what a sleazy report it was and what a great guy he was. Probably would have felt a little differently if it had, if it had happened now. I imagine so. And, and what was the, you were mentioning, what was the thing with his wife knew about an affair he had and then divorced him on his last day as governor? He had an affair in the 90s that resulted in a child, I think with his nanny, and they hid the child from his wife. And then the day after he stepped down as governor, she confronted him on that. And they, and they got divorced. Yeah. Um, I mean, none of my business. By the way, that 2003 gubernatorial election was the famous one where it wasn't just Arnold winning with a substantial plurality, but there were all these novelty candidates. I think Gary Coleman ran. Uh, there, there was a porn star running who got a lot of press. Uh, other other famous people that you might have heard of. An, an, adu- an adult actor or actress, you mean? You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Fair enough, actually. Actually. That was also at the time considered, that even though he was very popular, it was considered this sort of nadir. There were all these columns at the time talking about how this is an example of how America is too obsessed with celebrity culture. I mean, okay, this is what? What, what was Ronald Reagan? I'm, I'm, I'm unclear. Yeah. You know. Arnold was a bigger star. That's true. And a better star, frankly. <laughs> 
I've actually, I've never seen a Reagan film of you. Um, you know, I probably have, but uh, just because he was a Warner Brothers contract player. Right, so right. I probably saw him w- where he's like a supporting character. Maybe we should do Bedtime for Bonzo on the podcast. You know, a, a novelty item I've long wanted to get my hands on is, is a vinyl copy of that thing he made against socialized medicine. Oh, I bet that fetches a, a princely oh, sum. I would lo- if anybody has that or knows how I can get it, shoot let's, us a DM. Let's put it up as a, just a free track. <laughs> now, there's another way you can tell you Republican, your faith in free enterprise, faith in the resourcefulness of the American people, and faith in the U.S. economy. And to those critics who are so pessimistic about our economy, I say, don't be economic girly man. Well, thanks again, everyone, for listening, as always. Uh, we've got a Patreon app coming up. Uh, if you're not a subscriber... If you're unaware of the Patreon because we've been so bad at promoting it, you can find us on Patreon at Michael and Us. We've got a great episode coming up with Michael Brooks, who joined us as a guest to talk about the intellectual dark web and the uh, YouTube wonder that is Dave Rubin. Also some recent episodes on Judge Judy and the libertarian comedy film Thank You for Smoking. God, don't you just love podcasting? Like the 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 ideas are flowing through your veins. They're coming up with amazing ideas and putting them on mic. It, it's like it's like coming, you know? It's like the pleasure I get from coming. I'm, I'm potting in the gym. I'm potting in the I'm potting on the stage. Now watch this drive. President Trump, I just saw your press conference with President Putin, and it was embarrassing. I mean, you stood there like a little wet noodle, like a little uh, uh, fanboy. I mean, I was asking myself, when are you going to ask him for an autograph or for a selfie or something like that? I mean, you literally sold out at this press conference, our intelligence community, our justice system, and worst of all, our country. You're the president of the United States. You shouldn't do that. I mean, what's the matter with you? I mean, whatever happened to the strong words or to the strength of Ronald Reagan when he stood there at the Berlin Wall and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. What happened to all that?